section one of a history of our own times from the accession of queen victoria to the general election of eighteen eighty volume three this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by pamela nagami m d a history of our own times from the accession of queen victoria to the general election of eighteen eighty volume three by justin mccarthy chapter thirty the lorcha arrow part one after the supposed settlement of the eastern question at the congress of paris a sort of languor seems to have come over parliament and the public mind in england lord john russell endeavoured unsuccessfully to have something done which should establish in england a genuine system of national education he proposed a series of resolutions one of which laid down the principle that after a certain appointed time when any school district should have been declared to be deficient in adequate means for the education of the poor the quarter sessions of the peace for the county city or borough should have power to impose a school rate this was a step in the direction of compulsory education it anticipated the principle on which the first genuine measure for national instruction was founded many years after it was of course rejected by the house of commons when lord russell proposed it public opinion both in and out of parliament was not nearly ripe for such a principle then all such proposals were quietly disposed of with the observation that that sort of thing might do well for prussians but would never suit englishmen that was a time when oppression was regarded in england as a dull beer bemused servile creature good for nothing better than to grovel before his half inebriated monarchs and to get the stick from his incapable military officers the man who suggested then that perhaps some day the prussians might show that they knew how to fight would have been set down as on par intellectually with the narrow-minded grumbler who did not believe in the profound sagacity of the emperor of the french for a country of practical men england is ruled to a marvellous extent by phrases and the term un-english was destined for a considerable time to come to settle all attempts at the introduction of any system of national education which even touched on the compulsory principle one of the regular attempts to admit the jews to parliament was made and succeeded in the house of commons to fail as usual in the house of lords the house of lords itself was thrown into great perturbation for a time by the proposal of the government to confer a peerage for life on one of the judges sir james park lord lyndhurst strongly opposed the proposal on the ground that it was the beginning of an attempt to introduce a system of life peerages which would destroy the ancient and hereditary character of the house of lords allow of its being at any time broken up and remodelled according to the discretion of the minister in power and reduce it in fact to the level of a continental life senate many members of the house of commons were likewise afraid of the innovation it seemed to foreshadow the possible revival of an ancient principle of crown nomination which might be applied to the representative as well as to the hereditary chamber seeing that at one time english sovereigns did undoubtedly assume the right of nominating members of the house of commons the government who had really no reactionary or revolutionary designs in their mind settled the matter for the time by creating sir james park baron wensleydale in the usual way 
and the object they had in view was quietly accomplished many years later when the appellate jurisdiction of the lords was remodelled sir george lewis was chancellor of the exchequer he was as yet not credited with anything like the political ability which he afterwards proved that he possessed it was the fashion to regard him as a mere bookman who had drifted somehow into parliament and who in the temporary absence of available talent had been thrust into the office lately held by mr gladstone the contrast indeed between the style of his speaking and that of mr gladstone or mr disraeli was enough to dishearten any political assembly mr gladstone had brought to his budget speeches an eloquence that brightened the driest details and made the wilderness of figures to blossom like the rose mr disraeli was able to make a financial statement burst into a bouquet of fireworks sir george lewis began by being nearly inaudible and continued to the last to be oppressed by the most ineffective and unattractive manner in delivery but it began to be gradually found out that the monotonous halting feeble manner covered a very remarkable power of expression that the speaker had great resources of argument humour and illustration that every sentence contained some fresh idea or some happy expression it was not very long before an experienced observer of parliament declared that sir george lewis delivered the best speeches with the worst manner known to the existing house of commons after a while a reaction set in and the capacity of lewis ran the risk of being overrated quite as much as it had been undervalued before in him men said was seen the coming prime minister of england time as it will be seen afterwards did not allow sir george lewis any chance of making good this prediction he was undoubtedly a man of rare ability and refined intellect an example very uncommon in england of the thinker the scholar and the statesman in one his speeches were an intellectual treat to all with whom matter counted for more than manner one who had watched parliamentary life from without and within for many years said he had never had his deliberate opinion changed by a speech in the house of commons but twice and each time it was an argument from sir george lewis that accomplished the conversion for the present however sir george lewis was regarded only as the sort of statesman whom it was fitting to have an office just then the statesman of an interval in whom no one was expected to take any particular interest the attention of the public was a good deal distracted from political affairs by the simultaneous outbreak of new forms of crime and fraud the trial of palmer in the rugeley poisoning case the trial of dove in the leeds poisoning case these and similar events set the popular mind into wild alarm as to the prevalence of strychnine poisoning everywhere the failure and frauds of the royal british bank the frauds of robson and redpath gave for the time a sort of idea that the financial principles of the country were crumbling to pieces the culmination of the extraordinary career of john sadlier was fresh in public memory this man it will be recollected was the organizer and guiding spirit of the irish brigade the gang of adventurers whom we have already described as trading on the genuine grievances of their country to get power and money for themselves john sadlier overdid the thing he embezzled swindled forged and finally escaped justice by committing suicide on hampstead heath 
so fraudful had his life been that many persons persisted in believing that his supposed suicide was but another fraud he had got possession such was the theory of a dead body which bore some resemblance to his own form and features he had palmed this off as his own corpse done to death by poison and had himself contrived to escape with a large portion of his ill-gotten money this extraordinary parody and perversion of the plot of jean paul richter's story of siebenkes really found many faithful believers it is worth mentioning not as a theory credible in itself but as an evidence of the belief that had got abroad as to the character and stratagems of sadlier the brother of sadlier was expelled from the house of commons one of his accomplices who had obtained a government appointment and had embezzled money contrived to make his escape to the united states and the irish brigade was broken up it is only just to say that the best representatives of the irish catholics and the irish national party in and out of parliament had never from the first believed in sadlier and his band and had made persistent efforts to expose them about this time mr cyrus w field an energetic american merchant came over to this country to explain to its leading merchants and scientific men a plan he had for constructing an electric telegraph line underneath the atlantic mr field had had this idea strongly in his mind for some years and he made a strenuous effort to impress the english public with a conviction of its practicability he was received by the merchants of liverpool on november twelfth eighteen fifty six in their exchange rooms and he made a long statement explaining his views which were listened to with polite curiosity mr field had however a much better reception on the whole than m de lesseps who came to england a few months later to explain his project for constructing a ship canal across the isthmus of suez the proposal was received with coldness and more than coldness by engineers capitalists and politicians engineers showed that the canal could not be made or at least maintained when made capitalists proved that it never could pay and politicians were ready to make it plain that such a canal if made would be a standing menace to english interests lord palmerston a few days after frankly admitted that the english government were opposed to the project because it would tend to the more easy separation of egypt from turkey and set afloat speculations as to the ready access to india m de lesseps himself has given an amusing account of the manner in which lord palmerston denounced the scheme in an interview with the projector luckily neither mr field nor m de lesseps was a person to be lightly discouraged great projectors are usually as full of their own ideas as great poets m de lesseps had in the end perhaps more reason to be alarmed at england's sudden appreciation of his scheme than he had in the first instance to complain of the cold disapprobation with which her government encountered it the political world seemed to have made up its mind for a season of quiet suddenly that happened which always does happen in such a condition of things a storm broke out to those who remember the events of that time three words will explain the nature of the disturbance the lorcha arrow will bring back the recollection of one of the most curious political convulsions known in this country during our generation 
for years after the actual events connected with the lorcha arrow the very name of that ominous vessel used to send a shudder through the house of commons the word suggested first an impassioned controversy which had left a painful impression on the condition of political parties and next an effort of feudal persistency to open the whole controversy once again and force it upon the notice of legislators who wished for nothing better than to be allowed to forget it in the speech from the throne at the opening of parliament on february third eighteen fifty seven the following passage occurred her majesty commands us to inform you that acts of violence insults to the british flag and infraction of treaty rights committed by the local chinese authorities at canton and a pertinacious refusal of redress have rendered it necessary for her majesty's officers in china to have recourse to measures of force to obtain satisfaction the acts of violence the insults to the british flag and the infraction of treaty rights alleged to have been committed by the chinese authorities at canton had for their single victim the lorcha arrow the lorcha arrow was a small boat built on the european model the word lorcha is taken from the portuguese settlement at macau at the mouth of the canton river it often occurs in treaties with the chinese authorities every british schooner cutter lorcha etc are words that we constantly find in these documents on october eighth eighteen fifty six a party of chinese in charge of an officer boarded a boat called the arrow in the canton river they took off twelve men on a charge of piracy leaving two men in charge of the lorcha the arrow was declared by its owners to be a british vessel our consul in canton mr parks demanded from ye the chinese governor of canton the return of the men basing his demand upon the ninth article of the supplemental treaty of eighteen forty three entered into subsequently to the treaty of eighteen forty two we need not go deeper into the terms of this treaty than to say that there could be no doubt that it did not give the chinese authorities any right to seize chinese offenders or supposed offenders on board an english vessel it merely gave them a right to require the surrender of the offenders at the hands of the english the chinese governor ye contended however that the lorcha was not an english but a chinese vessel a chinese pirate venturing occasionally for her own purposes to fly the flag of england which she had no right whatever to hoist under the treaties with china british vessels were to be subject to consular authority only the treaty provided amply for the registration of vessels entitled to british protection for the regular renewal of the registration and for the conditions under which the registration was to be granted or renewed the arrow had somehow obtained a british registration but it had expired about ten days before the occurrence in the canton river and even the british authorities who had been persuaded to grant the registration were not certain whether with the knowledge they subsequently obtained it could be legally renewed we believe it may be plainly stated at once as a matter of fact that the arrow was not an english vessel but only a chinese vessel which had obtained by false pretenses the temporary possession of a british flag mr consul parks however was fussy and he demanded the instant restoration of the captured men and he sent off to our plenipotentiary at hong kong 
sir john bowring for authority and assistance in the business sir john bowring was a man of considerable ability at one time he seemed to be a candidate for something like fame he was the political pupil and literary executor of jeremy bentham and for some years was editor of the westminster review he had a very large and varied although not profound or scholarly knowledge of european and asiatic languages there was not much scientific study of languages in his early days he had travelled a great deal and sat in parliament for some years he understood political economy and had a good knowledge of trade and commerce and in those days a literary man who knew anything about trade and commerce was thought a person of almost miraculous versatility bowring had many friends and admirers and he set up early for a sort of great man he was full of self-conceit and without any very clear idea of political principles on the large scale nothing in all his previous habits of life nothing in the associations and friendships by which he had long been surrounded nothing in his studies or his writings warranted any one in expecting that when placed in a responsible position in china at a moment of great crisis he would have taken on him to act the part which aroused such a controversy it would seem as if his eager self-conceit would not allow him to resist the temptation to display himself on the field of political action as a great english plenipotentiary a master spirit of the order of clive or warren hastings bidding england to be of good cheer and compelling inferior races to grovel in the dust before her bullring knew china as well as it was then likely that an englishman could know the huge mummy empire by the hands of custom wrapped in swathing bands he had been consul for some years at canton and he had held the post of chief superintendent of trade there he sent to the chinese authorities and demanded the surrender of all the men taken from the arrow not merely did he demand the surrender of the men but he insisted that an apology should be offered for their arrest and a formal pledge given by the chinese authorities that no such act should ever be committed again if this was not done within forty-eight hours naval operations were to be begun against the chinese this sort of demand was less like that of a dignified english official conscious of the justice of his cause and the strength of his country than like the demeanour of ancient pistol formulating his terms to the fallen frenchman on the battlefield all ferrum and furcum and ferritum discuss the same in french unto him sir john bowring called out to the chinese governor yea that he would ferrum and furcum and ferritum and bade the same be discussed in chinese unto him yea sent back all the men saying in effect that he did so to avoid the fairing and furking and ferreting and he even undertook to promise that for the future great care should be taken that no british ship should be visited improperly by chinese officers but he could not offer an apology for the particular case of the arrow for he still maintained as was indeed the fact that the arrow was a chinese vessel and that the english had nothing to do with her in truth sir john bowring had himself written to consul parkes to say that the arrow had no right to hoist the english flag as her license however obtained had expired but he got over this difficulty by remarking that after all the chinese did not know that fact and that they were therefore responsible accordingly sir john bowring carried out his threat 
and immediately made war on China. He did something worse than making war in the ordinary way. He had Canton bombarded by the fleet which Admiral Sir Michael Seymour commanded. From October 23rd to November 13th, naval and military operations were kept up continuously. A large number of forts and junks were taken and destroyed. The suburbs of Canton were battered down in order that the ships might have a clearer range to fire upon the city. Shot and shell were poured in upon Canton. Sir John Bowring thought the time appropriate for reviving certain alleged treaty rights for the admission of representatives of British authority into Canton. During the parliamentary debates that followed, Sir John Bowring was accused by Lord Derby and Mr. Cobden of having a sort of monomania about getting into Canton. Curiously enough, in his autobiographical fragment, Sir John Bowring tells that when he was a little boy, he dreamed that he was sent by the King of England as ambassador to China. In his later days, he appears to have been somewhat childishly anxious to realize this dream of his infancy. He showed all a child's persistent strength of will and weakness of reason in enforcing his demand, and he appears at one period of the controversy to have thought that it had no other end than his solemn entry into Canton. Meanwhile, Commissioner Ye retaliated by foolishly offering a reward for the head of every Englishman. Throughout the whole business, Sir John Bowring contrived to keep himself almost invariably in the wrong, and even where his claim happened to be in itself good, he managed to assert it in a manner at once untimely, imprudent, and indecent. End of section 1